Want to do better? Then it's time to change the story. Welcome to our show about new visions currently transforming the world through the confluence of art, tech, and innovation. And now your hosts, Michael Ashley and Neil Sahota. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode. Hey, I'm very excited to announce our guest today, Nathan Chappelle, the president of Futurist Group. So before I talk a little bit about what that is, I want to just call out that he's got a really impressive background in philanthropy. He used to be the senior vice president of philanthropy at the City of Hope, where he helped generate over $165 million per year in funds. Before that, he was the assistant vice chancellor for advancement operations at the University of California at San Diego. Now he's working to help fundraising, especially for nonprofits, by merging AI with gratitude. So let's welcome him to the show. Great. Thanks for having me. Really a pleasure. Thank you for being here. So as a visionary, what is the story that you would like to bring to the world, Nathan? Yeah, it's such a big question to start out with. It's, it's exciting, and I'm not usually asked that, you know, that question. Um, to be honest, it's something that I did a lot of soul searching about, um, even actually uh, having been in the private sector for a number of years and starting and selling a couple companies. When I got into the nonprofit sector, it was all about making a difference um, in my life. Like I, 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 I had this internal sense that at the end of the day, no matter what I do, I wanted to make the world a better place and that when I leave this earth, that it will have been a better place. And so it's been a quest for me for probably 20 years to figure out how to kind of make that dream come to reality. And, you know, two decades in fundraising, leading fundraising teams, um, I think I finally came on the, the, the one thing or the one thing that I could contribute um, to actually, you know, make the world a better place in, in tangible terms. And that was really through um, this idea of uh, looking at, you know, hundreds of years of fundraising and being done a certain way and looking at uh, basically machine learning and AI and almost flipping the paradigm upside down to instill or inspire a net increase in generosity. So my, uh, my desire or my, my dream all these years has kind of come to this culmination of trying to inspire a net 1% increase in generosity, um, which in the United States would be $200 billion a year, uh, just 1% increase. So um, it, it, it seems tangible in some respects, and it seems completely out of, you know, out of, out of your mind to, to try to generate another $200 billion in philanthropy. Sure. So uh, how do we get there? How do we get th those generosity numbers up? Yeah, you know, it, obviously it's not an easy answer because humans aren't, aren't easy, you know, people in terms of trying to figure out. Like people make decisions um, both uh, economically and culturally and, and a variety of other rationally and emotionally. They make decisions to give back based on, you know, their upbringing and based on so many, like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of variables, right? And this idea is that, you know, we've always just kind of thought, well, a donor is a donor or wealth people, wealthy people are donors. And the reality is it's just much more complicated to that, than that. And what we discovered a few years ago is we were looking at uh, in a, a setting where we had lots and lots of data was that there were correlations between certain people that made gifts and certain people that didn't. And so this idea of using, you know, AI and big data to help uh, basically 
um, connect with people that resonate with a, a particular cause um, using using big data and, and AI. And, and frankly, I mean, while this idea is not new, the technology and the data didn't exist until this time that was would even make this possible. So I think it's really, we're just scratching the surface on what the future will be, but it's really exciting to think about um, this idea that fundraising is an N of one, that organizations, if they had the right data and, and technology, they could connect with the people that would care most about their cause in a way that would resonate with them to the point that those people couldn't not not give. Like they would, they'd have a, a, a reaction that they would feel so compelled, like, okay, this is my cause. I identify with it and I want to get involved. Uh, we're still far away from to that level of, of, you know, precision philanthropy of like the N of one, but we're getting a lot closer. And in the last couple of years, we're light years closer than we were four years ago. That that really resonates with me, Nathan, because, you know, in my IBM days, community service give back was really big and you had the option of like doing a monthly paycheck deduction to your favorite charities. And the list, I think, had probably over a thousand charities in there. And I, and I picked two because I was, one was my alma mater's foundation. The other one was actually Alzheimer's because unfortunately it's a disease that afflicts the family. But, you know, I had a personal stake in the game, I guess I'll call it. So that's why, but I always wondered about some of these others, but it was such a long list. I didn't want to try and go through it and see, are there other things that make sense? I mean, given that the ocean of opportunities are out there and what, I mean, what would you suggest to like a nonprofit about, you know, doing exactly what we are talking about and making this better outreach? I mean, how, what's the value to them, I guess, to know their potential donors better and make these types of deeper connections? Yeah, I, that's a great question. I mean, there's, you know, I mean, to your point, there's uh, like a million and a half nonprofits out there just in the United States, and it's overwhelming, right? I mean, ultimately, money follows, the, the, the traditional thinking has been like money follows wealth, uh, which is actually not true, and I can talk more about that. But, you know, this other idea that nonprofits um, have kind of worked under is that money follows engagement. So it's like, I try to find the people in the community, I get them to volunteer, I get them to do other things, I join the board and they become donors. The reality is money really follows resonance. So if you're looking down that list, it's like, I resonate with that, that organization. So the resonance has to come first. So it's, it's this idea that if a nonprofit could access certain types of data to identify people that resonate first, then they would go to the next step of, okay, these are the people that resonate. We have shared values. Like we are like-minded in a certain way because of past experiences or because how you identify yourself. And then you move into engagement and then you move into, you know, the, the capacity piece, you know, for, for me, um, really for about 40 years since wealth screening. So wealth screening is kind of the, the predominant way that nonprofits try to find donors. And it's really bothered me for a long time. I mean, it's been 20 years in the making of just this unsettled feeling that we just think that wealthy people are philanthropists and truly the meaning of philanthropy is, the Latin word is for the love of humanity. It has nothing to do with wealth. It means that you give beyond yourself, this altruistic kind of nature to give back to help others. And, you know, nonprofits have been kind of not forced, but the only tool that's been available for them has been this very kind of cheap, easy drug, which is wealth screening. So it's like we identify 
wealthy people. We focus our energy on those people and we try to convert them to becoming donors versus identifying people that have a digital exhaust or data that shows us that they already resonate with us. And so what, what we kind of, this epiphany or light bulb that went on maybe three, four years ago was like, philanthropy has nothing to do with wealth. In fact, only 56% of Americans even make charitable gifts. doesn't matter how wealthy you are. So this idea of like just looking for wealthy people and then identifying them and trying to cultivate them, it's, it, you know, you're basically 50-50 in getting to that point. So what our premise is um, and what we built our company around, it's really more about quality, not quantity. It's around what are all the digital, um, you know, the digital exhaust or the digital assets that exist around a person's experience? And then how do we quantify that experience as it resonates with a nonprofit's mission? Um, so volunteerism is a big way if you can quantify that or attendance at events or um, how people were brought up. And so we're still at the very beginning of this in certain areas like healthcare, where there's lots and lots of data, it's, it's kind of low hanging fruit because we can unpack all the patient experience and identify patients that are most likely to give. Uh, higher education um, is another area. Um, so it doesn't apply equally to all, but I think as nonprofits get better at collecting data um, on their potential community of donors, they'll get better at identifying where they should kind of narrow their focus. That's a, a very interesting solution. And it, it reminds me of uh, Seth Godin's book, uh, Tribes. The idea that people connect with other people that are similar to them, to have commonalities, to have shared experiences and identities. Um, I wonder if you could give uh, our, our listeners some examples of organizations you've worked with and how you were able to get them, uh, uh, encourage that kind of identity feeling to encourage more giving. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is. And having been in philanthropy for 20 years, I mean, it is extremely tribal. Like, I mean, there's, there's first the tribe of givers and not in givers, right? So, I mean, it's kind of startling when only 50, you realize 56% of Americans actually make gifts, meaning 44% don't. And I just, growing up, kind of giving back in a way where I, as a kid, I used to volunteer for Habitat for Humanity because it's what our family did, mm -hmm. you know? So, like, I grew up in that tribe. You know, and then you get into these multiple or, or kind of like segmented or micro tribes in, in you know, and, and a tremendous amount of pride in certain, you know, nonprofit missions where you're wearing their T-shirts and you never miss their walk and you tell all of your friends and you get your friends to support you as you're, you're doing that. So, you know, we started out um, in an area that has probably the most, the most robust data of any kind of human experience. And. And it made sense for a lot of reasons because, you know, one is we wanted to test and figure out if we could kind of decode generosity um, through experience and not wealth. And so we built our first machine learning models without using any wealth data, um, but truly just on experience. So in healthcare, it's probably the most quantified experience of your life um, other than maybe the military. But it's, you know, every time you go to the bathroom, it's written on a chart. Every time you have an appointment, what type of an appointment? And there are specific laws around fundraising and healthcare. So um, the laws are that you can't know a person's diagnosis or treatment, but you can know what kind of insurance information they have, what language they speak, how many appointments and what type of appointments, like the department that they were seeing, the doctor that they saw, the nurse practitioner they saw. So it turns out we started collecting all this data you know, and we figured out there's about 150 data points that speak to a person's experience. 
And then, you know, the, the beauty of machine learning is that you can take 150 data points and you could run basically around 4,000 calculations per person to show, you know, their likelihood to make a gift. And it's based on all the other history of every other person in the world that had had experiences and you're basically comparing them. So we've gotten to the point where our models can predict whether someone will make a donation about 50% uh, with about 50% accuracy from the start. Now, that's actually when you're just deploying a model. We have a, one of our client models is up to 70% um, because the beauty of machine learning is that every time you're introducing new data to it, it's getting, you know, it's refining its um, understanding of what donors and non-donors look like. So it's truly an investment. Obviously, you, the, the faster you start, the earlier you start, the more data you throw at it, the better off you're going to be in the long run. Uh, that compared to wealth data, which is about 10% accurate at its best. So we've, you know, quadrupled or, or quintupled what the current method is for most nonprofits, just starting point, and then being in a, a truly a machine learning environment, it's only upside from there, getting better and better. Well, that, that, that's awesome, because, you know, my experience working with nonprofits and organizations like NetHope that help nonprofits trying to get them to do something new is like trying to make a sharp turn in an aircraft carrier, right? So I'm just curious, what are some of the, the, the challenges that you're, you're facing to try and make this a reality? Yeah, you're so right. I mean, I, you know, one of the things I've, I've loved my, my two, you know, my, my 20 years of career in the nonprofit sector, um, but also at the same time, it is one of the most risk adverse um, sectors and and a lot of it and I, this would be a whole separate TED talk, but it's about how nonprofits are evaluated um, by how efficient they are, right? So they don't invest in in innovation. So one of the biggest challenges I think for me, for our company, for those you know, kind of in my inner circle, is changing almost a I mean a, a culture, like an entire way of thinking, disrupting that and saying, look. For the most part, every professional I know knows that wealth data is not the answer. Wealth data is very helpful for determining how much someone might give, but really bad at telling you whether they're altruistic. And so it's a it's a slow process, um, to be honest. Like we work with a lot of very large clients that have money to spend because machine learning is not cheap. Um, and that's where you know kind of most industries have to start. With they start with the innovators, the early adopters, those that. Are, are willing to take a little bit more, you know, quote unquote risk. And, you know, to be honest, it, the word is spreading rapidly. So we're now working in religion on, uh, with the Catholic church on identifying people that are most engaged in parishes or in the diocese. Um, higher education um, has come to us to help us basically unpack this idea of not all students who graduate um, are the same. Some had really great experiences and, finished in four years and lived on campus and attended football games and had took classes from award-winning professors and others had four, you know, 14 parking tickets and, you know, got straight C's and took them, you know, five or six years to graduate. So this idea of, of using the data that you collect to, to recognize that it's not everyone is the same, that everyone starts on this, this continu continuum of engagement in a different space and providing that insight to organizations, you know, in real time to help them calibrate, like, where do we start? Like, who are the people we should pay attention to? 
Well, by the way, I, I'm one of those people that didn't get all those tickets in college and they held up <laughs> diploma. So I, I understand what you're talking about, uh, but I still had a nice university experience and I still connect with my alma mater too. Um, so you're talking about changing uh, the way of thinking and also leading, talking about cultures. And what occurs to me is it's about the experience. And we're told again and again that millennials seek out experiences. So how can we begin to change our culture to provide these rewarding experiences that cultivate more generosity? Yeah, that's it's a huge question. And actually, there needs to be a book written on this um, called The Generosity Crisis. So, you know, what's happening in the U.S. is actually, you know, giving um, in gross terms has been going up. Now, this is pre-COVID. So in general, giving has is, is remained at 2.1% of GDP for 40 years. And it looks good, like on paper, because of, because of inflation, it's like, well, we hit $400 billion last year. I mean, that's a big number, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the real underlying challenge there is that a, a lot of the money is being made up by ultra high net worth individuals. So like the disparity of wealth in the country is huge and getting bigger and bigger. And, you know, billionaires are becoming multi-billionaires and they're very, you know, generous, making big, very large gifts. And what it's doing is it's actually masking the fact that the average American is giving less. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that has to do with um, upbringing and religion, not really wealth or employment. It has to do, uh, in fact, any person who associates with any religion gives twice as much as someone who does not. But at the same time, people are disassociating themselves with religion at 7% a year. So, so this idea of organizations needing to be very smart, like this is really kind of an arms race for business intelligence at this point for nonprofit organizations, because the, the pool of, of prospects is actually decreasing. So it's more important than ever that nonprofits are using data and, and AI truly to identify people that are you know, still in that pool of that 56%. Um, so I think um, w- one of the things that I think is an outcome of COVID, frankly, is that people are giving back extremely generously. The outpouring of support um, just the COVID in the last four weeks has been $8.4 billion. I mean, at all levels. So, I mean, it's been um, kind of this outpouring support and kind of a unifying try back to Seth Godin. Like, it's been a thing that we're in this together. Like, we're all now part of the same tribe. Um, that hasn't happened in generations. So, so we'll see how that plays out. But it really is going to come down to teaching um, younger people the virtues of giving. And to your point, millennials, in every study show that millennials believe that an hour of volunteerism is equal to uh, the money that the actual tangible dollars that they would give. So it's um, in past boomer generations would say, no, you're supposed to volunteer and you're supposed to give. So it's, it's definitely changing how organizations, you know, really approach different age groups um, and meet them where they identify. So whereas millennials really finding those meaningful engagement opportunities to get them involved, um, that they resonate with the organization and build those long lasting relationships with them. That, that's, actually, that's actually interesting, right? Because I, I know the experience and we always talk about you know, millennials want to be more sustainable, but I'm going to kind of ride that idea a little bit more and think about Generation Z, right? Because they're, they're obviously much different than millennials and Gen X and all that. They should be, but my experience with Generation Z is they're really focused on social impact and trying to do by the good. It's corporate social responsibility. 
I mean, even my undergrad business students, they're all business majors, want to do projects about social enterprise, social entrepreneurship. And I know that people say, well, they're young, they probably don't have that much money. It doesn't make sense to try and capture this attitude, this, this stuff, capture them early, essentially, and maybe build them up. And I don't know if there's a concept of like lifetime donor value, kind of cultivate this yeah. to, to build up the gratitude. That that's so great. There there absolutely should be. I mean, in very few organizations think about lifetime donor value, but it's it's real, right? I mean, if it's much harder to acquire a new donor than it is to you know keep a donor. But Gen Z is really interesting because I've taught some undergrad classes and I've been pleasantly surprised to hear that it's almost the best of both worlds. It's like they, to your point, they believe in impact and they want to know like it's. If volunteering, giving money, but how is it going to make a difference? Like, and how was I a part of that? So it's kind of like this blend of, you know, Gen X and and um, and millennials kind of together. Uh, boomers, frankly, just trusted that nonprofits were good and that they should just give because their parents gave, and that's what you do. Um, and that's changed quite a bit. I think Gen Z, um, in light of kind of experiences that they've seen growing up. Um, I think will be probably one of the, the more generous um, or an engaged, involved type donors in the future. So we've been talking about the importance of gratitude, and this is what leads to, to giving. Um, so I want to ask another question around culture, which is how do we get to a place where we're cultivating gratitude? Uh, not just for, for specific tribes, but as, as a people, as a nation, as a world. How do we get to that place where people feel more grateful for what they have, even in a time like this, when there's so many challenging things happening in the world. Well, that's like, that's the million dollar question. That's a, and it's a really hard question. I think, um, and it's, it's, it so much has to do with perspective and, and upbringing. I think I, you know, I tend to wake up every day and look at a website um, that kind of highlights all the recent gifts that came in yesterday. So I'm, I wake up every day almost inspired by how generous the world is. And it's like, you know, it's like, oh, so-and-so gave another gift and so-and-so, you know, they, they produce 500,000 masks or whatever. Um, and then others wake up thinking the world is evil. You know, what's in it for me? Um, I don't, you know, like I, I'm on the receiving end and it's hard. I think the only way that generosity really grows, um, one is, it, it spreads. I mean, I, I think absolutely it can be contagious. Um, so those that are of that 56%, like their responsibility is to spread that good news, like mm -hmm. to share like, you know, the virtues of giving because there's no one I've ever met that doesn't say that they were as blessed or more blessed by giving than the, the person that received whatever they gave, right? So it's like, it's this thing of that when you give, you actually feel better. I feel better. I start my day out writing thank you notes I, for, for a long time, five thank you notes every day, just handwritten notes to who's ever on my mind. And it puts me in that mindset of like, there's good in the world and, you know, showing appreciation. I think that's a big part of it. It has to be organic. It has to be culturally. I think there needs to be a movement in our country that really motivates and inspires and teaches the virtues of giving. Frankly, it might be one of the best vir best virtues of COVID have come out that that younger generations. When I see parades of cars going by hospitals, and we're talking like 500, 1,000 cars, most of those cars are filled with kids holding up signs 
thanking their healthcare workers. So they're being taught like there's something beyond me. There's people out there that are are good. And so I think that's the organic part. The rest of it really is the fact that people engage in certain ways, digitally, online and offline. And as organizations get better at capturing that data, they're going to get better at identifying the people that are resonating with them. Because ultimately, I believe that everyone could be a donor, but they haven't been given the opportunity to connect with a cause that they have a visceral reaction with, right? Mm -hmm. So like, I just believe that 44% are sitting around and driving by and, and I feel sorry for them because they've never met that cause that they could not not give to, right? That if you did your research and you did your homework and you found out of one and a half million nonprofits, like this is a cause that they would just, you know, it would be like, it'd be perfect for them that they would get involved. So I think that's where this can change. I mean, ultimately is nonprofit organizations, you know, look at the world and the data that exists in the world and how people are engaging they'll get better at, at identifying some of that pool of individuals that wouldn't have given otherwise. Mm-hmm. I, I want to kind of write on something that you, you really brought up. I think that's a powerful point. I, I can't say I'm an expert in neurochemistry, but I keep hearing about these things that one of the best highs, for lack of a better word, is helping people. And it's good natural feeling and it tends to last the longest. I hear a lot of people that you know they're doing good right now during COVID-19 and if we can kind of build that culture and that collaboration, it'll be good for just the general health and well-being of the entire society. Given that we, we hopefully we can do something like this, you're helping to change that story and helping to improve gratitude. Ten years from now, 2030, what, what's Nathan's ideal state for the world? What do you, what do you envision? Yeah, I, I mean, again, the question I'm not asked all that often, but, you know, I... It bullishly, like I dream of a, a time where, you know, I will die at a certain point that I leave this earth. And, you know, the dream state for me would be that there was a 1% increase in giving. And it sounds so easy. All you'd have to do is convince everyone to give 1% more of their income. And, you know, the average person's giving 2%. So it's just, you know, it's minimal. But the the impact that you know, I mean, right in today's terms, $200 billion uh, annually in just the U.S. would make in humanity, it would be tangible. Like you would see more people fed, more people housed. You would see uh, research projects done that couldn't have been done otherwise. I mean, it would just be, um, it'd be an amazing world if if we can inspire a net increase in giving. Oh, seems small, but powerful in the aggregate, huh? Yeah, very much so. I mean, it seems like a big thing, but it seems like we can definitely get there. So speaking of get, getting there, so how can more people learn about your organization? How can they how can they connect with you? Yeah, so our uh, website is Futurist Group. Which, uh, Futurist, by the way, is the Latin word for futures. We are trying to come up with something creative to, to name it. But Futurist, F-U-T-U-R-U-S group.com. Um, and then uh, on LinkedIn is actually, frankly, we post most of our our uh, our work and updates and articles and things like that in, in uh, LinkedIn as well. So we have a, a company website uh, called Futurist Group. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. This has been wonderful. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Really great to connect with, with like-minded people that really understand the promise of this. So uh, definitely appreciate you having me on.
Absolutely. Hey, well, fanta- fantastic. And I hope this inspires people to give 1% more. Exactly. Hey, thank you. Hey, if you like today's show, please remember to hit the like button and leave a comment. If you've been enjoying the Changing the Story podcast series, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Thank you.